This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to Jesse Marsh, the manager of Austrian soccer giant Red Bull Salzburg. He played college soccer at Princeton and spent over a decade playing in MLS before going into coaching. Marsh had an eventful, great, and also frustrating at times since as the head coaches, the Montreal Impact and New York Red Bull as well as time with the U.S. men's national team before landing in Salzburg and becoming the first American coach to win a top-flight European league and coach in the prestigious Champions League. His whirlwind coaching journey also provided an opportunity for him to follow his other passion, which is traveling. He has a goal to visit over 100 countries in his lifetime, and as of summer 2020, he's about two-thirds of the way there. Here's my conversation with Jesse Marsh. Let's start at the beginning. I mean, when did you know that you wanted to coach in this game? Well, I think, you know, my my early days and then even going to college and starting as a pro, my mind was so wrapped around being a player. Um, but I really had some significant people in my life that were incredible coaches and, and helped me get to the stages that I got to as a professional and helped me develop as a young player. And I think you know, after about two or three years as a professional, and, and that's about the time that I realized that MLS was going to stick around, that it was a league that was that was probably going to be around for a while, you know, and I started to entertain the ideas of what different career paths I might want to take. That's when coaching kind of became, I think, more and more interesting to me. Before that, I thought about I was studying for uh, my my GMATs and I was thinking about going back to school. But then the thought of like not having football in my life all the time, I think that turned me off. And so at that point, I started taking my coaching license. I started coaching youth teams. I started I started doing more than just playing. And a lot of it, I think that the idea of it was sparked behind the great coaches that I had played for. So were you coaching like while playing at that point, like the youth leagues? Yeah. So in Chicago, um, I took a volunteer job at, at Northwestern University as, as one of the coaches on the coaching, coaching staff for the men's team at the university. And then uh, shortly, a couple of years after I had that job, then I took a, a, a job in the northern suburbs as a coach for a youth club. And then a couple of years later in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which we all obviously know now, um, I coached, a, I was the director of coaching for a youth club, the, the top youth club in Kenosha, Wisconsin for a couple of years before I then moved to Los Angeles. Um, at that time, I had also taken my coaching licenses in the US and, and, and got to the point where I obtained the A license, which at the time was the highest um, coaching license that you could get in the U.S. 
at that point in your career, you know, as you're starting to get into it and deciding it's going to be kind of a career path, like what are you learning about yourself in that role, like in that position with teams? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I had a successful playing career. I played for 14 years. I was on a lot of good teams. But at around 25, 26, 27 years old, I almost started to treat my playing career as a research project. And, you know, I started kind of now testing myself in terms of standing in front of the team, becoming more of a leader, you know, becoming a captain type and, and, and learning how to, to, in front of the team, speak in a way that could resonate with the group where I could be a real leader. I also took more time in that time in the off season, traveling to Europe and visiting players that I played with, people that I had known that were working or playing for clubs in Europe to start to see how things operated a a little bit in Europe and start to think how that might affect me. I mean, I still have all the journals that I kept for a lot of these trips. And and I kept a journal while I was playing about things that I thought were important and, and what I, you know, what I wanted to include in, into my coaching personality once I started to to think about, you know, taking on that role. And and you know, again, it was it was always interesting because even when I was a volunteer at Northwestern or when I was working with young kids, it was always trying to put some ideas to practice and also working with other coaches or seeing how other people did things. And, and I even talk now, so much of, of what I do now is stolen from different places at different times, but how I put it all together and make it what it, what it is now is, is, is unique to me, is original to me. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I really think that that time helped me discover, you know, what I ultimately wanted to be once I got to this stage. So can you walk me through, um, you know, your, your first head coaching gig in Montreal and then like this, this period of your life that I have so many questions about, about traveling. Okay. Yeah. So I, I retired from playing in Los Angeles for a team in MLS, Chivas USA. Mm-hmm. I took a job with the U.S. national team as an assistant, um, which was an awesome job. I mean, I describe it as the best internship in football. And you almost, as an assistant coach for the national team, you almost get paid as if it's an internship. So it fits. <laughs> um, I believe that. Yeah, but, you know, I, I got to coach in a World Cup. I got to coach against some of the best players in the world and, and you know, again, travel and, and play against teams and study uh, teams and cultures and coaches. And I mean, it was really amazing. And, you know, I did that for a year and a half. And along with all my other experiences, I felt like it was time to explore the possibilities of what else, you know, my next step in my career to be a head coach. And so Montreal was an expansion team that came up. It also fit my idea of sort of testing my boundaries from a cultural perspective. And, and I'd learned French in, in college and obviously, Quebec is a French province or French speaking province. So, you know, I mean, right away in my first press conference, I spoke a little French and, and, and the idea of trying to coach in a multicultural uh, environment and, and, and then obviously in our league and, and, and they felt they needed some MLS expertise, some, someone who'd been around MLS for a while to help lead the club from what it was in the second division now going into the top division. So, you know, I mean, from a theoretical perspective, um, it fit really well. I, I vibed well with the with the owner and the sport director when we met, and and so then we found a way to try to start a relationship. So um, what a and, and coaching an expansion team. I knew it was going to be a big challenge. I mean, the, you know, once I took the job, the first discussion I had with the owner and sport director is like, let's all understand this will be the hardest year of our life, profession of our lives professionally. Um, 
it turned out for me to be that. <laughs> um, but it was an important step in my career, I think, to, 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 to become a head coach, to, to test myself, to, to, to use a lot of the things that I thought I wanted to apply um, when I became a head coach to actually put that to practice. So, yeah, that's kind of how that all came about. And then how do you get from that to deciding to travel the world instead of just going right back in the hamster wheel, getting a different job, you, you make that decision? So, yeah. So, you know, we had a, we had a good year together, um, in Montreal. Um, but at the end of the year, it was relatively clear that, that the idea, the ideas that I had didn't necessarily mesh the way that we thought that the ideas of the club had or the owner and the sport director. So, I mean, in the end, one of the things I learned about this business is finding the right fit is incredibly important. And, and I appreciate the fact that in Montreal, when I started to have the conversation about the fact that, you know, this just was never going to work because we didn't have the same goals and ideas, they were open to the fact that that was the case. And then they were open to the fact that we needed to, to at the end of the season, find a way to, to amicably find a new paths. So then, you know, I mean, the big difference between being a player and a coach is when you're done playing in the MLS, your contract is pretty much cut. Like you got to find the next job. And when you're a coach, you have a guaranteed number of years. And so when it doesn't necessarily work out, then you're still paid. So I had a 26 month severance package. I was, we decided to part ways on November 3rd of 2013 and I was paid until the end of 2014. So you know, like my family and I, we started, uh, my wife, we had a lot of discussions. We weren't that happy from a living perspective in Montreal. And so I had spoken to a couple teams at that time about maybe moving on to be a, a coach somewhere else. But I also felt like I needed a little bit of time to digest. Even after I finished playing, I went straight into an assistant coach and, and maybe I needed a little more time to kind of digest and figure out what I wanted to do next. And we talked about a bunch of different things. And it was funny. One of the first things we talked about, my wife and I was like, what about if we took a trip around the world? And then life was happening and, thing, a lot of, and we didn't talk about that possibility for another month. So it was into the beginning of December and we went to dinner with a Swiss family that we were friends with uh, in Montreal and, and they asked us, so, so what are you going to do with this, this, you know, new lease on life? And we were like, you know, and, and then we talked for like five minutes and I said to my wife, I'm surprised you haven't pushed me more for this idea about the trip around the world. And she goes, what do you mean? That's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe that has, you know, maybe, maybe our, our communication isn't what it should be. But, but then I was like, well, me too, let's do it. You know? And so they said they had a house in, in, in the Swiss Alps and, and they had some friends in different places. And so basically that night at dinner, we took a picture of us four and we said, all right, here's the start of this idea of the trip around the world. And then we basically spent the next month researching like what we could do, where we could go, what we needed, you know, what it, what a trip like that would require with three children of ages 11, nine and five and how to put it all together in our heads. So um, I've always had a goal in my life about traveling. I, I, I love to travel. And around this time, I had between playing football, working with the national team, traveling in my off time, vacationing different places, I developed a goal that I want to I go to a, 100 countries before I die. Currently, I sit on country number 68. The last country we, that, I, that I was at was Liechtenstein. 
Wow. So, yeah. But so then, you know, I kind of, and, and I, when I was traveling all this time with my job and in different things, I always said to my wife, I want to take you to all these places. Like someday I promise I'm going to, I'm going to share, I want to share a lot of these experiences with you. So this was, this was the chance to actually follow through on my promise. And I will say like, it was about the travel, but, and, and, and meeting people and learning about culture, but also it was about us five being together, right? Because when you're in the hamster wheel and you're working and whether it was as a player, or as a coach, you're traveling all the time, you're focused on your season and winning and that, you know, taking time for the family, a lot of times requires work. And, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just the reality of, of what this business is. And so, you know, that, the, the, the combination of, of us really learning about the world and us really learning more about each other and spending time together, it was an amazing, amazing time. You know, and from a, it's funny, from a family perspective, the two times that I think were the best in our family's lives were that, the trip around the world, and then the corona pause here in Austria. Hmm. Because for six six weeks, we were in our house and it was just all of us together. And, and it was difficult from a professional expect, perspective, but from a personal perspective, like us being together every day with no distractions was fantastic. You know, it, t- it sounds so amazing. So like um, when you're spending that month researching where you're going to go, where you're going to stay, um, I mean, I know at some point you were staying in hostels. I know you went to different continents. Like how, how do you piece together exactly how you want to approach that part? So I think um, we we were we did you know we just started googling and then we saw that there were families that did this right and there was some families almost created blogs where they discussed about if you were to do this like think about this and we went to these places and so that kind of started to give us a little bit of structure of okay what do we need when we backpack what kind of things will we you know like we we what we one of the things we got was an ultraviolet like uh, battery light. So that when we were drinking water in different parts of the world, if we put this light in the water for one minute, then it would kill all the bacteria or what kind of first aid you need, what kind of shots you need, you know, before you go. Um, So it was all these little details that we really had, you know, wouldn't have thought about unless we had learned from other people. Then we kind of had friends all over the world. And that was from um, where we grew up, where we went to university, in the football business, um, you know, different places that we lived. And we sent out an email and said, listen, as a fit to like a lot of our friends and said, this is what we're doing. If you happen to know people in different parts of the world that could that you could connect us with. And, and so then we started to gather like sort of like a, a little Rolodex of people that were at different places. And then we started to connect the dots on where we could visit people, maybe where we could stay on some couches, where we could, you know, do different things. And and then in the middle, we tried to find some experiences and some incredible places to see. And and so, you know, and, and we wanted to make sure that it wasn't like hopping from Marriott to Marriott. We wanted to do hostels. We wanted to do guest houses. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to actually experience what it was like for the people that live in some of these poor areas. We wanted, we didn't want it to be like an Americanized journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was an important part of it. You know, even like when we saw, we met certain people, certain places, and they'd be staying at like a Kapinski or they'd be staying at a Hyatt or something like that. We would say, no, we're at this hostel and we'll meet you here. And, you know, let's not do a, we, we, we found this really cool noodle shop or we found this or so, you know, we, we, we more brought people down to our level than we allowed them to bring us up to there. <laughs> but this was an 
this was an important part of it, you know, because we wanted our children to also know what, what it was like, you know, that not everybody has running water, that not everybody has all the amenities that we live with every day. And we wanted them to, you know, when we trekked in the mountains, we stayed in tents and camps. And we, you know, we, we went on certain treks where we met families that where the, they had children that had never seen white children before. You know, so we had all, I mean, kids that were running around butt naked in, in small little minority villages or, you know, that, I mean, it wasn't even that they were poor. It's just their standard of living was totally different. Like one day we were in Laos in the mountains and we went on this track and then, you know, we, we went, we, we took elephants up into a certain area and then got way up in the mountains and we took the kids to a, a school in Laos one day and they actually... They had no idea the language, but the kids would sort of explain to them what they were doing and they finger painted and they, do you know what I mean? So it was like, we tried to make it as authentic as we, as we could on the way to that school. I'd never, and maybe people know this or not. Like I'd heard this song, the rubber tree, and I'd heard about rubber trees, but I always thought that was like some sort of fictitious thing. And then, and we actually saw rubber trees and then we saw the sap that they would drain out of rubber trees. And it's literally, the sap is literally like a rubber band. You know, it's, it's elastic and it, and, and that's the, the lifeblood of, of a rubber tree, you know? And so like, these are things that of course our children learned, but then people would say, oh, that must've been amazing for your children. But it was the same for my wife and I, I mean, we learned ton and we met people and, and the acts of generosity. And I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, but that's, that's what we wanted out of the trip is we wanted that experience. How, how long were you traveling? We traveled six months, um, 32 countries, you know, and, and our, we, we, <laughs> one strategic thing we did with our children was they, they weren't very happy in Montreal either. And so we sat them down before the trip and we wanted this to be autonomous, you know? So we said to them, um, okay, so we, we we're, we're thinking about making a decision here. Um, you know, we could, take a trip around the world. And we had pictures of the Taj Mahal and the pyramids and, and we could see all these amazing things, and the weather is amazing things and the weather's nice and we could meet amazing people or we could stay here in Montreal. It's cold. You could go to school every day, <laughs> but it's your decision. We have to make this decision together. You know, and you do this sometimes as a parent, you do this sometimes as a coach. <laughs> and in the end they were like, let's go on this trip. And so for, for six months, they never complained, to be fair. Wow. They never asked to go home. They never, you know, I mean, there were days where it was like, I'm tired. Can we get something to eat? But it was never like, I want to go home, and which was amazing, right? And, and at the end of the trip, at the end of the six months, we were in, we were getting ready to go to England. And it was, you know, we kind of always had to make a, a plan a week ahead or so, so that we could get uh, a train or find a hostel or this or that. And we had to basically get the flights to go back to Montreal. And I remember sitting in the guest house we were in, in Calais, uh, France, getting ready to take the ferry across to England and saying to my wife, should we go to South America? Do we, should we go to Ireland? Like, what else do we want to do? Is there, and, but like, I was starting to feel a little bit anxious that I might need to get back and get a job. And I didn't know, and this and that. So finally we made the decision, pushing that button on the iPad to like buy the tickets, the plane tickets to go back home is one of the most difficult. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. I, ever, I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah, grueling, but 
And in the end, I didn't get a job in MLS and for another year and a half. So we didn't really need to get back. But it was good for the kids to get back in normal school and, and kind of, you know, renew our normal life. It's, it kind of sounds like you, I know the answer here, but um, I wanted to ask, like, is there a favorite place? But it honestly sounds like being with your family and experiencing all of that was kind of the best part of a trip like that. It was, but I have favorite places. Let's, let's hear them. I love to travel as well. have not been to nearly as many countries, though. It was... Laos, it was Nepal, and it was Jordan. And all of the places, all three of those places, I mean, we saw, like in Jordan, we saw Petra. In Laos, we went to Luang Prabang, which is a big Buddhist colony, city colony in in the mountains in Laos. And then in Nepal, we were in Kathmandu and Pokhara, and we were in the Himalayas. But the reason why we loved those places so much were because of the people, like the generosity of the people. They, they, especially as a family, they went out of their, everywhere we went, they went out of the way to take care of us. They went out of the way, random acts of kindness, you know, when we were at restaurants to, to introduce us to their families, to, I mean, you know, it was amazing. Amazing. We went to, we were in Luang Prabang, right on the Mekong River, having a little lunch at this quiet little place. And we had like an eight-year-old who was our waiter, <laughs> right? And our kids are 11, nine and five. And we're, and, and the way, and the waiter is like, he doesn't really even speak English, but we're pointing at things on the menu and he's writing them down and then he's serving the food. And then afterwards his mother came and she took us back to their house and we had tea with them on the river and they were, and the kids all played together. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's things like that, that, you, you know, you can't create, you can't, you can't find these kinds of experiences in most parts of the world. So uh, again, it was, uh, it was uh, incredible for our kids, but, but also incredibly valuable for my wife and I. So when, when life does resume, um, you said, you know, a year and a half later, you're, you're in MLS, you're coaching again. Is, is it different? Like, does it feel different having gone through an experience like that? Yes. The answer is yes. I mean, the day-to-day work like that part doesn't necessarily change. I mean, you know, the passion to, to be successful and to win and to push every day, but the perspective of what, you know, uh, challenges are, you know, one of the things I, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult to leave Montreal and, and even when we were on our trip, we would kind of look up the results of Montreal the next year. And I, and I had this animosity, like I hated the negative feeling that I had, like I was almost wanting Montreal to lose and, and I couldn't explain it because I liked the team there. I liked the players. I wanted those players to be successful. But like you just have these, these core emotions that when you're young and when you're, you're attached to competitive interests and success, you lose. It's hard to process how to feel about a competitive business. You know, I, I, I learned a lot from the negative energy I felt in that time too. I, I, I learned, you know, sometimes it would ruin my day if, if the team had won. And, and I would, and it would drive me crazy that I felt that way. You know what I mean? It, but that's almost sort of how the, the, it's like a jealous, envious feeling that, you know, it, it would eat at me. But the more that I traveled in these parts of the world and the more that I saw how people lived and the more how I saw that, that nobody cared about MLS, whether a team won or lost or what my, what my record was as a coach or a player, had no idea who I was. It was just about who I was and what the interaction was and the experience. The more I realized, like, that's what's important. And so I, that part I've tried to embody 
in my coaching career now is so much more about the experience that I, you know, and I coach so many young players now and I'm sort of developing a reputation for developing young players. And, and so much of, of what I do when I coach them is about the relationship and the experience and the, 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 the give and take and the challenges and embracing our lives together, you know? And, and I think as a player, I was a strict competitor a strict competitor. Like it was very black and white. It was win or lose. (laughs) And as a coach, I've developed this more broad perspective as to what is important to help create a kind of environment that can lead to success. And it's more about relationships certainly than it is about the pure black and white. I know that there's like a stigma or challenges about being American and coaching in European football, but like, was, was that a, in a space that you wanted to be in when you were thinking about your career earlier in your career? Like how, how did you end up, you know, crossing the pond? Well, to be honest, I didn't really know. It wasn't really an option. Even when I was traveling to Europe, when I was playing, when I was in my twenties, there were no American coaches in Europe. So it was only about preparing me to, to potentially coach an MLS or in university or, you know, and just trying to, to, to research a little bit. Of course, I'd always thought like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to, to be part of these environments to, you know, I mean, when I would go and watch uh, Premier League games, Champion League games, I would just be like, wow, this is just so amazing. And the passion and the, the, the feeling of the sport was so ingrained in the people. And so, you know, I did an interview when I came to Austria last year. And, and now I do everything in German here. And the, the, the interviewer asked me, was it my dream to coach in the Champions League when I was growing up? And I said, my dream was to live in Europe so I could watch Champions League at night. <laughs> like I said, no one in America is dumb enough to dream to play in Champions League or certainly coach. That's not a possibility. So, you know, I mean, but that, that also has given me perspective, I think. I think because... In some ways, I, I'm almost playing with the house money, you know? It's, I shouldn't be here. There's no reason for, for me to be in the situation I'm in. And the only way to do it the right way or the way that I believe is the right way is to do it the way that I think I believe can be successful and not be deterred by the idea of what success is or, or what the pressure is or, or how I have to behave and more just honor what I think is right. And so there's a, there's a freedom to that. There's a total freedom to that. There's when you're doing something at your core that you believe is the right thing to do and the right way to do it, then the, the pressure is, is released. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been a, a and, and I think even, you know, but my idea of doing this is, is, is honoring all these things, honoring the culture that I'm a part of, honoring the language that I'm a part of, honoring the club and the community and, and the team and, and making sure that, you know, it's not just what I think, it's also incorporating all the things that, that I know are important to what, of, what a club here in Europe is. And, and in that sense, I mean, I think, you know, there's been certain, you know, Bob Bradley came here and there's been he had different challenges and, but I mean, you know, because I speak German, because I've embraced the community and I'm not really treated like an American, I'm not really treated for anything other than, you know, what I'm, what, what the team represents, how the team plays. And so that, that's, that's, that's wonderful for me. It's a, it's an opportunity for me. 
had you spoken German or is this something you picked up like when you, when you got there, like how, you know, how do you kind of integrate yourself into a community like that? So in 2015, I, after my, <laughs> I went seven days unpaid. So I got the most out of my contract in Montreal. <laughs> I literally January 7th of 2015, New York hired me. And then in 2015, we had a really strong year with the team. We restructured everything and kind of turned it into a group that, that was about the group and created a really strong environment within the team and within the club and, and, and with so many, it's the help of so many people and players. I mean, really amazing. And then, you know, we had another successful year in 2016. And, and around that time, Red Bull started sort of speaking to me about their subsidiaries and the clubs that have other places and would I have interest in going to Europe. And, and at the time, you know, I was so passionate about the project in New York and we loved the, the situation we were in that I wasn't that I wasn't in a big rush to leave. But then as the talks became more serious as the years went on, you know, it became clear that a, an important part of me moving over here and working in either Germany or Austria was going to be learning German. So at the beginning of 2018, or yeah, I started learning German. You know, I had a teacher uh, through Skype, and um, but it's a brutal language. It's brutal. Yeah. I'm really bad with languages in general. I took Latin in high school and that has not been helpful at all. So I'm like, I can't, the idea that people can pick up languages as an adult is, is so like, I'm so jealous of that. I wouldn't, you know, I took French in school and then I spoke French in the media in Montreal and it was important to, for, I mean, I, you know, at the time the Habs, the, the, the Montreal Canadiens coach was Canadian and didn't speak French. And then an American came to town and did speak French. And that was a big advantage I had in the media. And so at that time, I learned how important that part of the culture was. So learning German, you know, I wasn't even really sure if I was going to come to Austria or Germany or when. But I, you know, then I kind of turned it into a, like, I get obsessed with certain things. And so it became an obsession. Right. And then when I moved to Germany, I, I didn't speak that much, but I understood more, uh, more. And then a year in Germany and, and, and again, the obsession, and that's the only way when you're older, because you're, you feel like there's days where your brain is made of wood, right? So like, whatever it is, like adapting to environments or changing or all these things are not easy, but you have to, you have to be obsessed with it. You have to really care about it. And that's what I did. And then, you know, I had lessons every week. We did everything in German. I was lucky enough to have another assistant who really worked with me. I spoke with the players in German and, you know, and then, but also in English. But then when I moved to Austria, we've done everything in German. And that was a big step for me as well. So, you know, it's two years later now here in Europe. I've had two years of immersed in, in the German language. I've pushed myself to learn. And, and now I can say I'm fluent. Um, but there's still learning that takes place every day. But the, the best part is, is I've gotten over the hump of like it feeling like it's a, it's a stressful <laughs> energy consuming part of every day that I'm, that I'm here. So now it's more like, it's just part of my existence. So that's a big step. So, so what have the last two years in particular, I guess the last year been like, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, working with young talent now and, and the fact that, you know, you could be in a situation where, you know, you, you lose your best players if they get too good, too fast, right? Like, what is it like, you know, coaching that level and the guys that you've been working with since being, you know, in European football? Well, first, I mean, my idea for coming here is certainly ambition is a part of it. 
But I think more so it, it's to test myself and to see if my idea of, you know, the process, leadership, relationships, if that can function in the most highly competitive environments in our sport. Okay. Now I'm aware that Austria is not the highest level in Europe, but we play in Champions League. I was in the Bundesliga. And so, you know, it's the start of the process for me. And I, what I've learned is that in a, and, and, you know, European football can be very sink or swim. If players don't succeed, there's somebody that they'll sign that'll come right in and take their position. Um, if coaches don't succeed, they're out within a year, easy, right? So in an often much shorter time. And in the end, I, I, I find that a lot of the reasons why those things happen is because people are too focused on results and they're very short-sighted. And so in the end, I've come here to try and see if I can put a process in place that's more about people, about relationships, about how we work with each other, about how we challenge each other. A big part of my leadership style is vulnerability. Like I don't need to always be right. I don't need to always have the answers. It's important in times of stress that I, I have solutions, but my, my process isn't about me being the almighty leader that, has, that tells everybody what to do as much as it's about trying to engage everybody to give everything of themselves to the group and in the process, uncovering the best of people and plenty of ideas that, that make all of us better. And the more that the, our environment is a reflection of everyone, I believe that the better we will be. So, you know, I, I, the, the, the early returns on this concept of, of people, of the interaction of people has been quite positive. And, and, and I now consider myself, I talk a lot, almost an expert on leadership in cult, in, in various different cultures, right? Because, okay, I've traveled a lot and I've learned a lot about different places, which when I meet people from Korea or Africa or South America or Europe or whatever, I have at least some idea of how things operate in that culture because I potentially visited there and had experiences, and then I think when I, when I gather all of my experiences from playing for Chivas USA, a Mexican-American club in MLS, coaching in French Canada, coaching in New York City, playing in Los Angeles, playing in Chicago, the three biggest cities in our country, but all very different, coaching in Germany, coaching in Austria. I've now learned a little bit about what makes cultures different and then what makes people very much all the same. And, and my ability, I think, to put all that together in a way that can, can sort of um, make sense and, and drive people has been a key to my success. What does it feel like when you are working to build those relationships and, and cross-cultural boundaries or, you know, with, you have a, a locker room full of guys that have all different backgrounds. What does it feel like when you, you do have those breakthrough moments where you feel like things are clicking or they are buying in or they're building those relationships with each other? Beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, and, and one of the, one of the things I always think about is like when things are coming together and clicking and I, I, I often use the phrase, I just need to stay out of the way. <laughs> but that's my goal. My goal is the, I think the best leaders are selfless, right? And they have the finger on the pulse of exactly what the group needs and how to provide it to them without having to be the main source of the main voice, the main source of information. Like, of course, 
I have to instill a plan whenever I come to a new team or when I'm asked to take the role as the coach of a team. Yes, of course, there are certain things that come along with it. But in the end, my philosophy is the more that I can remove myself and make myself totally like unnecessary, the better job I've done. So that part and that part is is a balancing act, but incredibly important, right? Is to make the 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 security of the team, the security of each player and their role within the team to make it clear, to challenge them, to give the most to that idea of what they are and to the idea of the group. And so, and when it's humming, when it's all moving in 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 the right direction, it's 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 really beautiful. But then it's almost like I'm I'm more anxious in those moments. To, to make sure that I'm not ruining it, the work that's been done than I am when, when things need more support or challenges. My, my last question kind of gets at something you mentioned earlier. You said, you know, someone, you know, is this a dream job or something that American soccer players or coaches like, you know, the, didn't think were possibilities. I mean, what does it mean now that there are American soccer players playing at the highest level of European football? Yeah, I think it's massive for our sport. I think it's important for our sport. I think the national team is important for our sport. I learned that at the World Cup, like how important that team was to our country and certainly to our sport in our country. I always, when I lived in the U.S. and played in the U.S. or coached in the U.S., I would watch what was happening in Europe and and I would be the biggest fan of the players that were there and hoping that they could be successful and watching Clint Dempsey, Brian McBride, Claudia Reyna. You know, you can go down the list of, of players that established themselves at an incredibly high level in Europe. And now with Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Josh Sargent, you know, there's lots of different, uh, Tim Ream, lots of different names and and i will say my it's it's really important and and my coming here wasn't really as much to be a part of those names as much as it was just to kind of live the life that i thought i needed and and kind of take the path that i that i that i thought was unique to me but i have like even here they asked me like you know how have people responded back to you in the us and and at first i didn't really know i didn't really know that anyone paid attention or knew what was going on but as time's gone on i've realized that it's 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 been more important than i even realized you know the only way that i think for me to 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 discuss this topic is the best way for me to honor that that role is to to do it the way that i think it needs to be done and to work as hard as i can to help it help it grow and then in the end um with even you know i mean like i'm very close with tyler adams and i know he he has an a relentless pursuit to try to be the best player he can be and there's again there's that's 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 the beauty of it it has nothing to do with money it has nothing to do with fame it has nothing to do with being an american it's just trying to honor his path and 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 his potential and it's been very fun to work with a young player like that that has such confidence in himself and and belief but also is very humble and willing to work for whatever it takes and i think that balance in life is really important is really important. And, and, and so for the American player over here, I think we're still, and certainly American coach, cause I'm so, you know, it's such a new theme. We're very undervalued and, and under-respected, but I think that's almost a, a, an area that Americans can, can thrive in, <laughs> right? This idea that we can be the best and it doesn't matter what anyone says. And we're going to work as hard as we can because our self-belief and our grit 
is so strong. It was, it was the biggest strength of our national team in the world cup. I believe is that, is that we believed we, we could succeed. Right. And, and we were relentless to pursue that, 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 that idea. And so, you know, I, I know that the pedigree of the American player and American coach isn't at the highest level here in Europe, but I know that everyone that's over here is working as hard as they can to earn that respect every day and to almost prove everybody wrong and help us step by step as Americans here in Europe in this massive sport to establish ourselves. That was my conversation with Jesse Marsh. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.